This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT11. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from New Era Colorado, La Show, Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, The Green News Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Young Turks. Spot fires are blowing up all over Colorado's, growing to about 8,000 acres in a matter of hours. As many as 60 structures in the National Climatic Data Center last year, the warmest on record for the United States going back 118 years. The disasters carried more than a billion dollar price tag, including... This is a story about something that's happening in every community across America and what one community is doing to fight back. This is a story about democracy, about David versus Goliath, about our planet and health versus corporate greed. This is a story that might just be the shot across the bow for how our society finally addresses climate change. It all started with a local community that created a landmark opportunity to create a new energy model to be applied in cities across the country. It's a model that addresses the root cause of climate change, and it's happening here in Colorado. 2011, city of Boulder voted to localize its power supply. First city in the country to do so for the sole purpose of reducing its impact on the planet. We voted to become a locally owned municipal utility so that we could make our energy decisions right here at home. Our electricity is predominantly um, produced in coal-fired plants. Our community has one of the most carbon-intensive fuel supplies in the country. We already know where scientists say we need to be to even begin making a difference. But we also know that we are not on a path to get there anytime soon. After many frustrating years of trying to reach our energy reduction goals, by working with our existing monopoly utility, Excel Energy. We learned just how broken our country's energy infrastructure is, all because of just a handful of huge corporations that stand in the way of change. So we decided to create a model for how a community, any community, can take real action against climate change by phasing out fossil fuels and transitioning to a grid dominated by renewable energy. Excel spent a million dollars on a well-orchestrated fear campaign. But a committed group of community advocates in a small nonprofit that gets youth engaged in politics won the day. Outspent 10 to 1, the grassroots coalition registered voters, knocked on doors, and made thousands of phone calls. So David beat Goliath, for now. And then a third-party reviewer has come in and looked at that complete package and said Boulder has done an excellent job at studying this, better than most communities that these third-party reviewers work with. And they found out that they could get there. Cleaner, cheaper, and quicker on their own. So with this news, Goliath re-emerged. And this time, Excel Energy is flooding our community with even more money. Boulder once again is facing a massive amount of corporate influence on our community. They're funding a ballot measure that aims to undo our community's work, confusing residents and businesses with outright lies. And they're preparing to spend whatever it takes 
This is a textbook example of how corporations attempt to influence our democracy, election after election. No, seriously, they have a textbook. There's a lot on the line here for Excel. Not only are they defending the 35 million in profit they make off of Boulder each and every year, but they know that Boulder is on the verge of setting an important precedent. A precedent that has national significance and could threaten not just Excel Energy, but the very core of the business model, and the billions in profits that come with it, of the dirty coal energy industry. If Boulder is successful, we'll show the country that with local control, a community can put their values into action. That when a community isn't reliant on an outdated corporate structure for their energy, they can not only power their community off renewable energy, but it can be done better and cheaper. And if we can do it, maybe other communities will start wondering what the millions in profits they pay to their power provider could do in their city. And in fact, communities are already starting to do just that. And that would be a symbolic defeat Excel just can't have. If we win, we trigger a national model that can be replicated across the country. But the only way David beats Goliath this time is with your help. Because the only way to counter money is with people. We need to run a truly sophisticated grassroots campaign that will expose Excel for what they are, a huge corporation looking to buy an election in order to protect their profits. We need to hire organizers that can recruit volunteers to mobilize our community, both online and off. We need the resources to get the real message out. We did it last time, but this time is going to be a fight our community has never seen. They might have the war chest, but we have the army, and we are here to recruit you. Right now, more than ever, we need you. Your financial support will help restore our community's voice in this election. If we can win this fight and choose to empower our community to say no to fossil fuels, it'll create a model for your community to do the same. And together, we'll show the big utilities what real, local power looks like. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? And I think you will. Humanity has pushed the world's climate system to the brink, leaving itself only scant time to act. That's from the head of the UN's group of climate scientists on Monday. 
But hey, we're ignoring their weapons inspectors. Why don't we ignore this too? We have five minutes before midnight, warned Rajendra Pachauri, whose organization will this month release the first volume of a new assessment of global warming and its impacts. Quote, we may utilize the gifts of nature just as we choose, but in our books, the debits are always equal to the credits, he said. May I submit that humanity is completely ignored, disregarded, and been totally indifferent to the debits. The IPCC is made up of several hundred climate scientists worldwide, as you may know. A leaked draft two weeks ago said human activity is almost certainly the cause of climate change. The draft also forecasts that sea levels could rise by 90 centimeters, three feet, by the end of the century, and all but dismissed recent claims of a slowdown in the pace of warming, upon which climate change skeptics have seized. We cannot isolate ourselves from anything that happens in any part of this planet. It will affect all of us in some way or the other, Pachauri said. Reigning in greenhouse gas emissions is still possible if countries, including in the developing world, rethought their approach to economic growth, he said. Oh, just that, then. That would, all, that would boost energy security, cut pollution, and improve health, and also offer new job opportunities, he added. Or we could all buy Teslas. A slowing in global warming that climate skeptics say undermines the greenhouse theory is simply a hiatus from higher temperatures, scientists said last month. Grasping one of the thorniest issues in climate politics, the researchers said the recent slowdown lies in a natural but temporary cooling in the tropical Pacific Ocean. The current hiatus is part of natural climate viability, they said. Similar events may occur again, but when assessed on a timescale of decades, the warming trend is very likely to continue with greenhouse gas increase. The question touches on an anomaly in science, uh, the uh, science of climate, according to fizz.org. Contrary to earlier predictions, warming of Earth's surface in recent years has not occurred in lockstep with rising levels of heat-trapping gas in the atmosphere. Over the last 50 years, temperatures have risen by an average of 0.21 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. But over the last 15 years, the increase has slowed to a rate of 0.09 degrees per decade, even though fossil fuel carbon emissions continue to break new records. Skeptics have seized on the discrepancy as proof that if warming exists, it is not man-made, but has natural causes such as fluctuations in solar heat, or not enough people buying Teslas. The new study published in the journal Nature uses a climate model, not observed data, which is generally considered stronger, to say the riddle is explained by ocean circulation. The cooling matches an unusually long but natural trend that is similar to La Nina, they say. Under El Nino, a buildup of exceptionally warm water moves across from the west to the eastern Pacific under La Nina. Things go into reverse, and the ocean in the eastern Pacific becomes cooler. In both cases, extreme droughts or rainfall can occur. By carefully analyzing a 150-year-old moss bank on the Antarctic Peninsula, researchers reporting in current biology... My subscription has lapsed, unfortunately. Describe an unprecedented rate of ecological change since the 1960s, driven by warming temperatures. While moss and amoebae may not be the first organisms that come to mind when considering Antarctica, they are dominant components of the year-round terrestrial ecosystem in the small ice-free zones during the summer down there, says one of the researchers from the British Antarctic Survey and the University of Cambridge. We know from meteorological measurements and from the interpretation of signals preserved within ice and sediment cores that the climate of the Antarctic Peninsula has undergone substantial and rapid change. 
she says, Jessica Royals. Our evidence from the southernmost known moss bank exploits an unusual biological archive and shows that the flora and fauna of the Antarctic Peninsula are very sensitive and have in the past responded and continue to respond to these changes in climate. They look to the Antarctic Peninsula, these researchers, because it is one of the most rapidly warming regions on Earth. Average annual temperatures there have increased by up to half a degree per decade centigrade since the 1950s. They were able to characterize the growth and activity of moss and microbes over that time. Growth rates and microbial activity have risen rapidly since the 1960s in a manner that is unprecedented in the last 150 years, consistent with climate change, although recently it may have stalled. Well, who hasn't? And when enough raindrops fall over land instead of the ocean, they begin to add up. New research led by the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR. I'm a big NCAR fan. They go to all the races. Shows that when three atmospheric patterns came together over the Indian and Pacific Oceans, they drove so much precipitation over Australia in 2010 and 2011 that the world's ocean levels dropped measurably. Unlike other continents, the soils and topography of Australia prevent almost all of its precipitation from running off into the ocean. Oh, let's just get it to rain more over Australia, I say. Don't you? So easy to decipher, so hard to harness. Burying my head in the sand, trying too hard to understand. How can I make it rain? Who tell me? Top businesses would not be profitable if environmental capital costs considered. Most of the unpriced costs from greenhouse gas emissions, 38%, water use, land use, air pollution, land and water pollution, and waste. The analysis estimates that natural capital costs at $7.3 trillion, equating to 13% of global output in 2009. Let me explain what that, um, what that comment means. And apparently it's uh, from a story in the... Uh, the examiner. Businesses create externalities, essentially costs that society bears as a byproduct of them making, producing, mining, whatever it is, their products, and getting them to market. Society bears those costs. We are providing hidden subsidies to all of these companies. And so when a libertarian comes in and says we shouldn't have these regulations and whatnot, we should have even less regulation than we have now. And all regulations do is basically force corporations to internalize the cost that society would otherwise bear. I can't remember who sent it. I think it was uh, listener Malachy, I think, sent this to me. It's from the CBC. It's entitled, How Do You Make Car Companies Innovate? Regulate Them. Don Pittis writes, Remember how all the car makers complained about the CAFE standards? These were the rules set in California but adopted by the U.S. and Canadian governments requiring cars to use less fuel. New rules 
for 2025 in that uh, you need to get 65 miles per gallon in uh, Canada, 54 in U.S. by 2025. Impossible, said the car makers. It places an unfair, unfair burden on passenger cars, says the Volkswagen executive Tony Servone in 2011. But we have seen now a tremendous explosion of innovation by car companies. In fact, the Boston consulting firm issued a report showing that car companies now make up almost half of the top 20 most innovative companies in the world. The rest are tech companies. The other half are car companies. Because with those parameters set by the regulations, essentially said you can no longer socialize the costs of low-mileage vehicles to the rest of society. Society's not going to pick up the tab for all that added pollution for all the added crap in the atmosphere, for the increase in global warming. You must bear those costs now. And how do car companies respond? Do they go out of business? No. <laughs> they innovate. Meanwhile, we are subsidizing all these other corporations by allowing them to socialize the costs of their profits onto us. No bigger story in all of American society than that. That's what every argument about regulation comes down to. Do we have to pay for your profits? And I'm not talking about in buying your product, just in your making, making the product. Why do we as a society, even people who don't use your product, have to pay that? That's a corporate tax on all of us. So we can price in the, uh, the, we can get a cheaper car that blows up, as Milton Friedman would say, but uh, what about the uh, uh, first responders who my tax dollars are going to go because we have cars that blow up? What about the slowdown in traffic because your car is blown up on the highway? And productivity is down. You could pay for a different highway system where you look less likely to have cars blow up on, Sam. There is a... Why do you always refuse to think in market terms? It's a little <laughs> bit disturbing, buddy. Squarespace is a fantastic platform that allows anyone to easily build professional-grade websites and online portfolios. They have an array of stylish templates created by award-winning designers, and they're adding more every month. Creating your site by adding and manipulating your content is just drag-and-drop, so it couldn't be easier to get started. If you're selling physical goods, digital goods, or even music, they have specialized features to suit your specific need. And regardless of what type of site you build, you'll benefit from their built-in integration with all of your favorite web services, including Facebook, Twitter, 
Dropbox, Google, and more. Basically, Squarespace understands that on the modern internet, a lot is demanded of websites by both webmasters who manage them and the users who visit them. They also understand that more people than ever are building websites, and not all of those people took years of training learning to write code. The result is a platform that meets the needs of the modern web, as well as the needs of the modern website owner who just wants to focus on their content without getting bogged down in the process, all while providing 24-hour support so you know that someone is always there to help you when you need it. So use a web platform that is built for today's web with your needs in mind. Try it for free for 14 days to see all the details, and then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT11. That's L-E-F-T and the number 11 to get 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. So again, the offer code is LEFT11 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. You know, sometimes it seems like we've moved beyond certain bad habits in coverage of climate change, the bogus balance of scientists and warming deniers, maybe, or the easily debunked argument that global warming stopped in the late 1990s. And then sometimes it seems like we haven't moved on. Take a segment on the September 26th CBS Evening News, which on the CBS website was headlined, Globe Not Warming as Previously Thought, UN Report. That would be the new intergovernmental panel on climate change report. CBS correspondent Mark Phillips kicked off his report sounding rather cheeky. Another inconvenient truth has emerged on the way to the apocalypse. The new UN report on climate change is expected to blame man-made greenhouse gases more than ever for global warming. But there's a problem. The global atmosphere hasn't been warming lately. Now that warming has stopped argument from climate skeptics doesn't add up. Temperature data show the planet warming every decade since the 1950s. So after introducing a totally misleading factoid, CBS turned to a scientist to explain that much of that warming is going into the ocean. So in one sense, CBS is at least correcting a misimpression it gave its viewers. But then Phillips refers to the apparent pause in global warming, which he just explained isn't really a pause. And then he moved on to portray this as giving climate skeptics more ammunition. And he closes the report by interviewing one such skeptic. He finishes off by telling viewers that, quote, the climate change debate is about to heat up, close quote. Well, let's hope the debate is more informed than this segment. Let's get you all into the conversation here. Greg in Chicago. Hey, Greg, your thoughts on climate change? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I hear you say this repeatedly because I do listen to you frequently about the population. I mean, 
Okay, so what what does the planet handle? Who picks that number? Well, I I can I can give you a couple of, of fairly useful metrics. If if you look at the population curve of the planet Earth from say the time of Christ to today, okay, um, when Jesus was walking around loose two thousand years ago, there were about a quarter billion people, two hundred fifty million people on the planet. Over the next thousand years, around the year one thousand, we just about doubled that. We got to five hundred million, and then over the next thousand years, actually, or eight hundred years to, to to the year eight eighteen hundred, um, we added another uh, another half a billion. So we got all of human history. Actually, you go you can go back one hundred sixty five thousand years. All of human history finally produced one billion people in the year eighteen hundred. Okay, that's one billion people. All of those people, and and we had quite an impact on the planet. In eighteen hundred, the world was well populated. America, you know, North America had been occupied by Europeans. South America was being occupied by Europeans. We were we were all over the planet. We were pretty much everywhere, and that was still one billion people. But we were all living on current sunlight. We ate food that was grown from sunlight that that did that food. Our clothing was made from contemporary sunlight, cotton, wool, things like that. Our our fuel sources were almost exclusively wood, and so wood is contemporary sunlight. It's like at the worst, a hundred years old, a couple hundred years old. So, so we were all living on contemporary sunlight up until 1800. In the 1800s, I mean, it really started like 800 years before that, in a small way. But in, in the 1800s, we got really aggressive about mining coal. And this led to the Industrial Revolution in the 1860s, and, and and actually the age of steam in the 1820s, in the 1830s. And so we got really, really successful at taking coal, which is 300 million-year-old sunlight, plant matter, taking ancient sunlight. Now, instead of using contemporary sunlight, we started using ancient sunlight and converting that into food. Basically, for us. In other words, we 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 could transport food more efficiently, you know, with the railroads and things like that. Uh, the cotton gin, we could, you know, we could we could shuck corn and and shell, you know, thresh wheat and all that kind of stuff. So we got more efficient with that. That led to the second billion human beings. The first billion took 165,000 years. The second billion, now that we were using ancient sunlight in the form of coal, took 130 years. Okay, so in 1930. The year Franklin Roosevelt was sworn into office, there were 2 billion people on the planet Earth, 1932. Only 2 billion people. During that time, we had started to get really successful at using other forms of ancient sunlight. In 1865, Colonel Drake drilled the first successful commercial oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Um, by the 1890s, the Rockefeller, uh, Rockefeller and his buddies uh, you know, had turned... Uh, figured out how to turn oil into kerosene, and we were powering everything with kerosene, and we were starting to have cars, and things were starting to move around. You know, cars were new inventions. I mean, you know, a lot of towns still had horse-drawn carriages and horse-drawn even public transportation in 1930, when our second billion. But we were starting to get really efficient at using liquid ancient sunlight. Oil is ancient sunlight that's 300 million years old too. So our third billion people didn't take 165,000 years like our first did. Uh, and it didn't even take 130 years like our second billion did. Our third billion people took only 30 years. The year Jack Kennedy was sworn in, 1960, we hit 3 billion people. By this time, we were getting really efficient at using ancient sunlight and turning it into food. We had learned how to, in, that, in those 30 years, 
We had learned how to convert oil into fertilizer and into pesticides and into herbicides. And so we could radically, we could convert oil into food much, much more efficiently. And you had the Green Revolution as a consequence of this. So our third billion was 1960, and then we really took off. The fourth billion took only 14 years, 1974. The fifth billion took only 13 years, 1987. The sixth billion took only 11 years, um, 1990, whatever that would be. The seventh billion we're into right now. And there's this exponential curve that's happening. We are going to hit the capac- our own capacity to produce food out of oil, basically, sometime in the in this century i mean there's just you know there there is there is a wall there because we're we're seeing this this uh this incredible slope if you're if, if but to give an honest answer to the question what is the appropriate carrying capacity of the planet in terms of human biomass we have now by the way exceeded termites as the single largest form of single species protoplasm uh, on earth human beings We've, we're, we're, there's more of us than there is cockroaches. It's not numerically, but in terms of biomass. So, and, and we are consuming more than 50% of all the fresh water on the planet, and we're consuming more than 60% of the net photosynthetic output of the planet, all of the plant matter that is converting sunlight into cellulose and sugars. And so we have crowded out all these species. This is what Richard Leakey wrote about in his book, The Sixth Extinction. We're making all these other things extinct. Because we're converting oil, ancient sunlight, oil, gas, natural gas, coal, into food, basically. So if you really want to know what the carrying capacity of the Earth is with regard to the human race, I would look at before we began using ancient sunlight. And that would be 1800. And I would say, you know, that one billion people, probably an appropriate population for the planet Earth is a billion people. And if we were to, and now this is not practical, of course, but if everybody on Earth said, okay, our families are only going to have one child, and every couple starting tomorrow had only one child, by the year 2100, the population of the planet Earth would be at 1.7 billion people, which I think is sustainable especially if we had the new technologies that were using sunlight directly, like you know photovoltaic cells and things, and we were completely off the carbon cycle. And uh, we would also be making room for the rest of life around us. That would be highly sustainable. Am I making sense here, how Craig? would you... Well, I mean, is it, again, the, the population driven off the food that we can produce to support the population, right. but to sit there and to say that we want to tell Russia, China... I mean, how do you even come about with that thought? Well, China, China actually did it with their one-child policy, but they, you know, here's, here's, here's the actual technological solution. Historically, what people have said is that the way to reduce population is one of two things. It's either a technological answer, in other words, propagate birth control everywhere, make sure that every woman in, in the world has access to birth control pills, put bubblegum machines on the, on the street corners that don't require money, just walk out and get your free birth control pill, uh, pass out condoms everywhere, and there are actually... NGOs that are doing this that literally go into you know in, into into the slums of Bangkok and pass out condoms by the ton. Okay, um, the technological solutions number one and number two was economic solutions and this was championed by conservative economic economists who observed that as nations got wealthy their birth rates dropped. Japan actually has a negative birth rate right now. Their population is declining. Denmark has a negative birth rate. Sweden has a negative birth rate. The richest countries that have the highest standards of living on Earth actually have declining populations, which is a good thing because a declining population tightens the labor market, which raises wages, which raises the standard of living for everybody. So how does that happen? 
Well, these guys said that the way that happens is by development. So all you need to do is you need to go into the poor countries of the world where the average w- woman is having between 7 and 11 children, which is the, the you know, much of, of the, the really poverty-stricken world, uh, Africa, parts of South America, the Middle East, and, and parts of Asia. Go into those places and just develop them. The problem, you know, have them live the lifestyle of even poverty-level Americans, $15,000 a year lifestyle and they will then stop having so many babies. The problem is, A, if everybody on Earth, keep in mind, 2 billion people right now live on less than $2 a day. If everybody on Earth lived at $14,000 a year, it would take four planet Earths to provide the natural resources. So that's not physically possible. But even if it was, it turns out that that's not the solution. It's not that people are wealthy, because there are countries like in in the the Middle Eastern uh, oil shakedoms where you've got... Um, like in Saudi Arabia, the average family gets about $42,000 a year just as a gift from the government every year. That's the base income. No matter what you do, here's your base income. And, they, and their wives are still having 11 children. Why? It turns out that the single thing that turns population, the thing that turns population, that reduces population, is the empowerment and education, and the two, of course, are interrelated, of women and girls. If you can go into a country and educate girls and women then and, and, and give them power equal to men or close to equal to men, and there's a tipping point, it seems to be around 35 or 40% of power equal to men, then suddenly family size goes from 11 down to 2. And over time, as the country gets wealthy and more prosperous and the women become more and more powered, then it goes down to like 1.9, 1.8, 1.7 like Japan is right now. So, if you want to save the world, Greg, empower women. End of rant. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, again, I mean, the, the magical number is that who's the person that steps up and becomes uh, king of the planet says, this is the number I, I decree, and it can't exceed that. Well, it's, I'm just saying, here's what science, here's what biology tells you. And, and you know, the, I, I don't think, I think that, Using enforcement mechanisms like China did, you know, where if you have a second child, you have to abort it, or you get fined, or you can go to jail. I think that's that's not the way to do it. I don't think that anybody needs to be king of the world. I think what we need to be is the educators of the world. We need to be going into third world countries, and instead of bombing them, or instead of trying to convert them to our religion, or instead of trying to extract their oil, we need to be building schools all over this world for girls. Greg, thanks a lot for the call. Unburnable carbon, that's the new warning for investors in oil, gas, and coal from the International Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, warning that the biggest risk to investors is stranded assets, according to the OECD's Secretary General, Angel Gurria. If policymakers cap carbon emissions, then we could have what I would call unburnable assets. Now, the looming choice may be either stranding those assets or stranding the planet.
It may come to that. Numerous studies have calculated that two-thirds of known fossil fuel reserves must stay in the ground unburned if humanity is to have any hope of avoiding catastrophic climate change. Smog Blog uh, reports on a new study uh, released this week entitled Billionaire's Carbon Bomb. It is produced by the International Forum on Globalization. This is going to come to a shock with you, uh, to you, uh, but it appears that Coke Industries, owned by the Coke brothers, David and Charles, own more than 2 million acres of land in northern Alberta. It is the source of the tar sands bitumen that would be pumped to the United States via the Keystone XL pipeline. What is the value of 2 million acres of land that is sitting atop one of the largest carbon deposits, carbon-based fuel deposits in the world? Well, apparently it's $100 billion. And uh, so for those of you who were curious as to why the Koch brothers have spent uh, over $50 million to organizations who support the pipeline, uh, now you know why that's the case. The Koch brothers uh, stand to make a lot of money. And just to tie things in, you'll recall that the Keystone, passing the Keystone XL pipeline or permitting it, um, despite the fact that there's all sorts of eminent domain issues in Nebraska and Texas and takings of Americans' liberty to have their property in those states for a pipeline that will just ship the, uh, uh, the bitumen down to the Gulf Coast where it will be refined and then sold to China, the Tea Party, just weirdly, even though they're so against corporate interests, really want to see the Keystone XL pipeline built, ostensibly because of the 30 jobs that it will provide for Americans. Unbelievable. And I should add, 120,000 jobs lost during the government shutdown, uh, according to new studies. So, there's that. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. 
restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. We reported on this a couple of weeks ago, an unusually large oil spill that happened on a wheat farm near Tioga, North Dakota, in the central part of that state. A farmer was out harvesting his wheat and noticed the spill. That was in late September. The pipeline company that ran the pipeline that was spilling uh, told the state that it appeared about 750 barrels of oil had been spilled. As the cleanup started, state regulators said nothing to the public. More than a week later, state regulators got a new estimate for this spill they had been keeping quiet about. They had thought it was 750 barrels. Turns out it was more like 20,000 barrels plus. And that is when they finally, at least, told the state's governor, more than a week into the cleanup. But even after that, for two more days, nobody told the public what was happening at all, until a reporter from the Associated Press started asking about it. Left to their own devices, who knows when officials in North Dakota would have said anything about that big, big oil spill, if ever. Uh, quoting the lead state official, quote, it's on a top of a low hill in the middle of a wheat field in an area with no residents at all. The public has a right to know, but do I have a responsibility to run out and tell the public every time there's a spill that's not going to threaten them or the environment that the company is aggressively cleaning up? That was yesterday. Today, North Dakotans got more news about what they do not know. Turns out that in the midst of their state's headlong oil boom, there have been hundreds of oil spills reported to the government, but never revealed to the public. According to these new documents obtained by the AP, North Dakota logged 291 oil spills this year alone that the public was not informed of. Since January 2012, North Dakota regulators have recorded more than 700 oil field incidents. Again, none of them publicly reported. And here's the thing. The oil and gas industry in North Dakota just closed a $25 billion year. The part of the state economy that involves pipelines is worth more than twice the crops and livestock part of the economy. The part of the economy and the land that includes the wheat fields where those pipelines sometimes spring their giant leaks. North Dakota runs on oil and gas these days. The question is to what extent oil and gas runs North Dakota governance. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. And welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And Alan Weissman is with us. He is the, uh, formerly wrote this absolutely brilliant book, The World Without Us. And his new uh, critically acclaimed bestselling book, Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, is out now. And uh, just an extraordinary 
thoughtful perspective. Alan, am I pronouncing your name right? Wiseman. Wiseman. Alan Wiseman. Wiseman. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, Alan, welcome welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. And tell me, what is our best last hope or last best hope for a future on Earth? Well, you know, my subtitle ends with a question because that's what I was trying to find out myself. It's very complicated, and I just set the facts out there, and I hope the readers can decide uh, for themselves if it is what I think it is. But basically, at the end of my last book, The World Without Us, I ran into this troubling fact that every four and a half days we're adding a million people to the planet. And I'd really written that book because I want a world with us. I'd sort of try to clear everything away, you know, clear us away so we could see how nature would restore itself so beautifully and then see if we could add ourselves back to the picture. But those kinds of numbers are unsustainable. So in this book, Countdown, I look to see if we can determine how many people can fit on this planet without tipping it over. Uh, and if so... Is there something that we can do about that that is acceptable to the wide range of the world's cultures and religions and political systems? Uh, you know, nobody really likes the Chinese one-child policy, including the Chinese. I spent a month there. In fact, I went to 21 countries for this book. And we all know that most nations and religions started with a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to become you know the biggest, biggest and mightiest one around, to so they wouldn't get out competed. But now we're living on a planet that is so full of us; it's beginning to really stress the ecosystem in a way that is potentially causing a lot of trouble for us. And as we keep growing, those problems are only going to grow more severe. So that's what I set out to find. Is there a way that we can bring ourselves back into balance with the rest of nature so we can ensure our own future on this planet and to do it in such a way that we would find it, you know, most of us on this planet would find this to be acceptable, even something within our belief systems that would accommodate it. Right. I, I, back in 1996, when I wrote Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, I remember the stats that we pulled together that at that point in time, we were using about 50% of the net photosynthetic productivity, the NPP, the output of all the plant matter on Earth that, you know, is using photosynthesis. We were using over half of all the fresh water. Is it, has it gotten worse since then? Yeah, there's more of us here. I mean, you know, we, in the last 12 years, we added another billion people. Right. And as someone points out in my book, you know, if you try to count to a billion, it would take you 30, 32 years. People are being added to the planet faster than we can count them. Right. So what? So what is the? What do we do about this? Well, what I discovered that we can do, and we're already doing it. There's good momentum for this. It just needs to be emphasized and accelerated and made more widely available. Is simply giving people the opportunity to decide for themselves how many children they want uh, by making contraception available. And in my book, I talk about the male contraception that's now coming available as well as female contraception. Uh, about 250 million people, women in this world, would like to have it and they can't get it. And to make it available, it's not that expensive. Uh, worldwide, we could do it for 
uh, about a little over eight million, eight billion dollars a year, which is less money than we were spending per month in Afghanistan and Iraq. We being the United States. Sure. Um, one other element, and and I go to several countries that show how well this works. If women are given the opportunity to be educated, uh, that pretty much solves the problem right there. Education is the best contraceptive of all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, Italy, a Catholic country with the Vatican telling them that contraception is a no-no, it also has probably the highest percentage of uh, women with graduate degrees anywhere. And, and even if a woman just gets through high school, she's deferring her childbearing and then she's got something interesting and useful and helpful for her family. Uh, so if she wants to have children, she generally stops with two or fewer uh, because you can't exercise that profession if you've got you know, a horde of kids hanging on you. Right. Uh, this is something that has been effectively used by countries who realize that their population was going to outstrip their opportunity to provide jobs for them. And uh, just keeping women in school, I mean, you know, it's such a wonderful bonus, too, because at the end of it, we get these very, very skilled women who can only enhance society. I thought it was interesting that um, I th think it was Mitch McConnell might have been <coughs> earlier today was was saying, uh, I'm pretty sure from the floor of the Senate, was saying that it was a group of women in the Senate who put together the deal that's that's uh, turning the government back on. And, and well, I didn't hear that, but I'm certainly not terribly shocked. Yeah, I, and I thought, whoa, what a what a great acknowledgement. It's it's like it, it seems that that uh, those societies where women have equal power with men and that and or even something close to equal power with men that population stabilizes, but not just that, quality of life improves. Absolutely. Um, you know, and you have you have fewer kids to take care of. You can take care of them better. You right. can educate them. You can feed them. In so many poor countries in the world that I visited uh, for this book, uh, there were examples of families getting smaller and suddenly getting healthier. How do you rebut the folks? And, I, and I've, I've had them come on this program, and I end up in a debate with them who say, uh, "Oh, we, you know, we've, we've, we're J Japan, for example. Our population is shrinking. It's going to create a demographic crisis. We've got to, you know, we can't have a smaller population. It seems to me like if you've got a smaller population, you know, uh, if, uh, even if you've got more old people, that that tightens up the labor market, which raises the price of labor, which improves both, you know, government income in form of taxes, but also." Improves standard of living, but what well, do I know, Well, the, what the economists are telling you is that pro-growth economists like big populations because that makes labor cheaper. Uh, they can get, you know, they can get poor people basically, you know, competing against each other to see who will accept the lowest salary, and that ultimately leads us to more social inequity, which is getting in, us into a lot of the social and economic problems that we're in in the first in the first place these days. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Japan for this book because they do have a shrinking population owing to the fact that after World War II, their economy was so devastated that they literally had to cut off their baby boom because too many people were dying of starvation. And this was before the birth control pill, so they legalized abortion then. 
uh, and as a result, you know, many women who didn't want to watch another baby died, you know, took advantage of that, and um, now there's a much smaller generation taking the place of that old, overgrown generation that was so overgrown, Japan invaded Manchuria and started World War II because they needed more room. Mm -hmm. So today, um, yes, a lot of economists in Japan are wringing their hands, but there are also economists who are seeing it from, you know, from the other side. I spent a lot of time with one of them. He's in a very distinguished uh, policy institute, Akihiko Matsutani, and he sees that this is an opportunity for Japan to get down to a realistic level mm -hmm. and live within its means. And because you know there will gradually be fewer people, demand will lower, so yeah. there will be fewer need for working hours and people will have more leisure time. And it's that's all, it's all good. That Alan, Alan Wiseman. Hang on just a second, Alan. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Alan Wiseman, his book is Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. Alan, thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure, Tom. We'll be right back. have a tradition of publishing uh, letters from their readers and oftentimes they will publish a letter that might be factually incorrect. However, when it comes to the issue of climate change, the Los Angeles Times has decided that they will not publish any letters that deny climate change. Now, I should be clear, if there is something from a credible scientist and he has uh, the education and the credentials necessary to make a valid argument about climate change not being um, uh, a man-made event or man-made situation, then maybe they will consider it. But if it's a reader who just says things like, oh, climate change is a conspiracy, it's not caused by humans, and it's just flat out wrong, they say that they will not publish it. And they're getting a little bit of flack for that. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, Jake? Uh, they're getting flack from the same people who are paid to give them flack, who represent the oil companies, the energy companies, who want to create a fake debate. Now, say about it in, this, in these terms, and it'll become crystal clear to you. Um, if the Los Angeles Times said, hey, you know what, we're no longer publishing quackery that questions gravity, you know, letters to the editor that say, no, if you jump off a building, you really, you'll float away. It's okay, you won't die. Well, we're not going to do that because that's actually dangerous, and it's not true. Our job is to do reporting, journalism, to bring you the truth. It's, our job is not to report things as things are neutral, you know, oh, if you jump off a building, you might float away or you might crash to the ground and die. Well, that's not what reporters do. So here, of course, they're 100% right to say we're not going to publish things that aren't true. Yeah, I, I think that it's a no-brainer. I agree with you, but I'm actually shocked at the number of publications that disagree with the Los Angeles Times. So just to give you a quick example, um, USA Today, 
Mm-hmm. You might get into one of your rants. But USA Today uh, recently published a letter by Joseph Bast. He's the president of the Free Market Heartland Institute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and, and he was denying that climate change was caused by human activity. And it's just, look, 95% of scientists at this point, and this is according to the UN, agree that climate change is fueled by human activity, right? But why are you going to just allow someone who obviously has an incentive to lie to use your publication to spread his propaganda and his lies? That doesn't make any sense. So-called think tanks like the Heartland Institute that talk about free markets don't give a damn about free markets. They're funded by energy companies and, and individuals who've made a ton of money from the energy industry to put out lies there. This is an old trick that tobacco used to do. Some doctors say that it causes cancer, some say that it doesn't. You have to publish them 50-50. We finally got past that. Now the oil companies are doing likewise, right? And so publishing a letter from the Heartland, is that's ridiculous. That's just, you know where that money comes from. You know what their bias is. To pretend as if they're a neutral think tank, like, oh, what do they think? Is nonsense. It is nonsense. And the plain dealer uh, from Cleveland uh, basically says, we will publish almost anything because we will let our readers argue with one another on our publication. So if someone uh, sends in a letter that is incorrect, right, there are no facts there, someone else will um, go ahead and rebut that, right? Mm-hmm. But I. I mean, really, you you want to turn your letter section or your editorial section into like a like a ridiculous forum where people can just spread lies, yeah. you know, and get into arguments with one another. I mean, and also people might read that stuff and they'll think that this is factual. They'll think that the editors read it and it's fact, and they'll just publish it. Yeah, when they see something in the paper, they think it's real. They think it's true. Exactly. Like oftentimes people say, "Oh, I heard it on the radio, so it must be true." <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth, but it gives it a sense of authority, right? Mm -hmm. Now, look, if you ask those same papers, hey, would you put out a letter to the editor that said, if you touch gay people, uh, you will get AIDS, and hence they must be quarantined, would you put that out? I, I would be shocked if they said they would put that out, right? My guess is they would say, well, well, that's not true, and it spreads misinformation that's dangerous. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right? And now that's what the global warming deniers are doing on a global scale, right? And so, and they get paid to do it. It's even worse because of that. It's not just ignorance. They they know they're lying. They're putting it out there for their own financial interests. You shouldn't let them get away with it. Hey, this is Emma from Houston, Texas. I think I've left like three messages since your last episode, but this is probably the one I care about the most. I just started listening to the most recent episode on voter rights, I think, and race, given that you started it talking about how you don't have to be a racist to be in favor of voter restriction and voter ID laws. I would just like to note that I think it does a disservice to the conversation about race to call people either a racist or not a racist because I believe that the only way we can really tackle this issue is to not be so afraid of being called racist as an adjective rather than as a noun that you know we can't even handle the conversation at all 
Honestly, I think we are all somewhat racist in our conditioning and our upbringing. And it's important we recognize that, which means we need to deal with this as an adjective that many, if not all of us, are, as opposed to a noun that you can throw at somebody, which will then make them clam up and not want to even think about the topic anymore. Thanks, Jay. This is Kenneth from San Diego, and I was just listening to your October 30th episode. And at, in the end notes, you were make, you were discussing um, voter suppression and the day, day people voted and things like that, and the fact that you feel that voting the, day, the voting day should be a holiday that everyone should get off. Uh, I agree with that part. I agree that everyone should be allowed to vote. I agree that measures should be taken to ensure that everyone has time to vote. That uh, I even like the idea of a holiday. Where I disagree is that you suggest that the holiday should automatically be on a weekend on Saturdays and that that would help solve the problem. The problem is it would not. The majority of the people who are being suppressed work on Saturdays. A lot of them work on Sundays. They, they are, a lot of them are the working class people. A lot of them are in the service industry. A lot of them are in businesses that just do not stop. A lot of them work on the holidays. A lot of them work on Christmas and Thanksgiving. And simply moving the voting data to the weekend would have no impact on those people. Uh, that's all I had to say. I'll go ahead and cut it there because I don't want to go too long. Hey, Jay. What's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, I'm Colin. I just listened to the uh, last episode on the government shutdown and the, the voicemail text on the end, it got me thinking because you, uh, you commented on a, on a caller's voicemail who had called and said, hey, why don't we look at the conservative point of view and check out their perspective and it might help us understand. And then you made a good point of saying, yeah, you know, if people are ideologically and morally consistent, that trying to figure out what motivates their morals is instructive for a member who opposes those particular ideas. My problem is, at least where I live and the people that I interact with and that I come up against, they're not morally and, you know, ideologically consistent. You know, there's, there's a ton of examples of this, but for instance, people who despise abortion, who go on Fridays to the Planned Parenthood that's by my house and pick it, but they're for the death penalty. You know, we, we have that right there as one. We have people who really don't like the ideas of helping out poor people in the form of, of food stamps and, and, and WIC and things like that. And a lot of that kind of anger towards the poor is felt here locally, and I live in one of the most Christian cities in the country. So there's these, there's these contradictions. And how, as a, how do you argue against people like that without losing your mind? Because for me, I get completely angry. I try to point out the hypocrisy, and they tell me, oh, no, it's... It's not that, you're just not understanding it. And to me, it's blatant and it's obvious, and I end up usually getting angry and saying, screw it, just forgetting about it. And I find myself having a hard time getting anywhere when I do that. So I just wanted to ask that question. So open any questions for you, for anybody else who wants to call in and answer. You know, how do you deal, you know, at least the morally, even if I disagree with someone's morals, if you're consistent about it, great. You know, then you can have a conversation about the values and definitions and things like that. But if you're morally inconsistent and all over the map, it's extremely difficult to get anywhere because you never know. You can't make any logical decisions that A is going to follow B is going to follow C. They're all over the map. So anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd ask that question. Maybe somebody can help me out. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first quick announcement is that Stitcher, which is a very popular way for people to listen to podcasts, has just announced, uh, at least they announced to me, that uh, they have opened up the ability to uh, rate and review the shows that you love. So if you rate and review Best of the Left, it can help you know promote the show to new people, have other people find it uh, through the Stitcher app. So that would be greatly appreciated if you, especially if you use that service. Uh, definitely check out. Uh, you know, however, I'm sure you'll figure it out. However, you can rate and review. Please do that for the show. Uh, secondly, responding to e- each of these voicemails one by one. I, I really like uh, the call about the, the difference between racism as an adjective and racist as a noun and, uh, and and totally agree with the sentiment. The the comment that she was referring to uh, of mine was, in all honesty, an absolute joke uh, at the beginning of the show. Um, and I, I think at the end I, I referred to the fact that essentially everyone, especially in American society, has you know racist elements to them. So I'm totally on board for all of that. Uh, just something – it's a nice thing to keep in mind. I definitely agree that you know labeling someone as a racist is a very quick way to shut them down and you know make them disengage from the conversation entirely. And, and frankly, that may go for a lot of different things. I think I've mentioned on the show before that you know one of the smartest things I had heard from you know a, you know very strong women's rights advocate is she said you know I don't I don't label myself a feminist. I say I practice feminism, which is essentially the same thing in reverse. You know, uh, d- defining oneself as uh, by adjectives rather than labeling as a noun. And it's kind of a nice way to just soften that whole area. As as we know, labels can can do damage sometimes. Secondly, thoughts on voting on the weekends. I, I mean, I don't think that there's too much disagreement uh, that I have with this caller. Uh, frankly, just that I, I don't think that having the voting day be on a weekend does any more harm to those oppressed people who work on weekends than having it on a weekday. That's kind of a wash either way uh, based on his argument. So uh, I, I think that Voting on weekends doesn't solve everything, obviously, uh, but it does more help than harm. So that that was my only point. Uh, a, a whole lot more needs to be done to help those disenfranchised people get to the polls. Uh, voting on weekends is just one of them. And then finally, thoughts on moral consistency. I, I frankly, I, I completely disagree with Chris from Colorado Springs on his interpretation of the moral inconsistency, at least of of the examples he gave. You know, frankly, I, I mean, I've heard these arguments made pro-life versus death penalty. That's thought of as very morally inconsistent by liberals because, you know, if you, if you think that a baby is life and you think that a death row inmate is a living person, which I think we can all agree on, then those should be equal. But no, the, the moral consistency that they show, I mean, they've expressed it to me uh, directly is that you know, a a fetus, which they consider to be a full living human, is an innocent person, which is very distinctly different from a guilty person, someone who has sort of relinquished their rights to be treated humanely. If you know, essentially, they say if, if they've broken the the standards of society, then 
they have no problem killing them. So uh, they, they have moral consistency that I completely disagree with on, on a couple of different foundational issues, but the moral consistency is there. Uh, as for helping the poor with food stamps and, and you know women, inf infants, and children program, those sorts of things, there are a couple different elements of this. One is that uh, sort of ironically, I think, conservatives believe very strongly in karma. They believe that you know if you work hard, you should get the benefits, and if you don't work hard, then you should you know reap the punishments essentially of not working hard. And so I think that they're very wrong in thinking this. They're, they're wrong to think that we live in an egalitarian society where America is built on a meritocracy where, you know, everyone's outcomes are based entirely on their efforts. It's completely wrong and misguided. But, but if they think that, then a person who is poor is probably poor because they didn't work hard enough. And so they don't want to, you know, uh, reward people for not working when they themselves obviously worked. And, you know, and then uh, things like, you know, food stamps and WIC, like I said, it, it also just is an affront to their belief in the role of government, not because they don't want to help people. They may very well think that, you know, they themselves would donate to, uh, you know, soup kitchens and they think that churches should, should do that. And like, I, I donate to my church and I would donate to these, uh, you know, individual groups, but it's not the role of government to do that. So again, it's not anything that I agree with by a long shot. I think that those sorts of ideas lead to a, a you know, destructive path for society where people are hurt needlessly and effect, essentially end up hurting all of society, including those at the top. But I definitely do see the moral consistency in those things. And frankly, a lot of these ideas uh, you know, I, I, were fleshed out for me uh, by uh, an interview I, I heard with Jonathan Haidt. I, this conversation has come up in the past. Uh, he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he basically sort of psychologically breaks down the moral, morally consistent arguments of both uh, liberals and conservatives and shows how everyone really considers themselves a good person. You know, Darth Vader, he was just trying to be, bring order and peace to the universe. If only everyone else would listen, he wouldn't have to kill so many of them. You know, he was being very morally consistent in that. You know, and frankly, everyone has uh, the idea of themselves as the good guy fighting for what's righteous. And so I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's been on my list, but I enjoyed the interview uh, that I heard with him. Uh, so if you want to check him out, Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews for us on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left to free, easy, incredibly powerful way to support the show. Check out that URL for all the details. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past
Sassy Pal Star All the sad stories And 